Okay, so about a month before Holly and I's wedding back in the day, uh, our catering fell through. And we found ourselves in this awkward position of going, oh man, what are we going to do? And uh, with about a month left, we decided to go potluck style. And this was really scary. It felt kind of last minute to try and line up a new caterer and all. And this felt a bit scary, though, because most of my friends were kind of college age era. And I'm like, dude, it's going to be like KFC and Doritos and, you know. <laughs> so we came up with a plan. Uh, we had a system we put in place. And it was everyone, we want you to like write down your favorite recipe on like a three by five card and make and bring that recipe. And what then took place shocked us. It blew us out of the water. People prepared the best food we've ever tasted. Man, it was like ribs and steak and carne adovada and like big portions. It was the best, the best meal I've ever had in my life. And actually about 10 years later, I still found people coming up to me and going, man, you remember like your wedding, like the food was off the charts. It was not only uh, rose almost a level catering, it was like 10 times better. And partly too, because it was our community, our people bringing it to celebrate us. For this sacred ceremony, this august occasion, uh, this momentous gathering. It was threatened with disaster if everyone could just kind of brought their leftovers, but in their devotion to us, they brought their best, and it ended up being a dream wedding, right? I want to talk this morning about worship. I want to look at worship. Uh, we want to look at worship where weekly we have this sacred ceremony, this weekly gathering as we gather together as the bride of Christ with him, our groom. As we gather as the citizens of his kingdom with him, our king. As we gather as the children of God together with our father. And there is a power when we bring our best to God together as his people. We're in Micah 1 this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. Uh, if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. I'm sorry, not Micah 1, Malachi 1. Uh, a lot of the same letters in that name. We are in a series on Malachi. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep the one that they're bringing you. It's our gift to you. We're in a series on Malachi, and this morning in Malachi 1, we find uh, that Malachi is confronting a disaster. That when it comes to worship in the temple and the gathered life of the people of God, the people are just kind of bringing their leftovers, right? And it's leading to just kind of a shabby ceremony. And so Malachi is confronting the people and calling them, no, bring your best to God. Like, get out the three-by-five card, write out your, bring your favorite meal, your best dishes, bring the best you have to give to God. And there's a power that takes place in worship and our life with God as his people when we bring and give him our best. So the title for the sermon this morning is Ditch the Leftovers, right? Ditch the Leftovers and Bring Your Best to God. Let's take a look. Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Let's jump down to verse 13. We'll come back to the middle later. It says, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Well, the first thing we see here, Malachi 
essentially tells people, ditch the leftovers, right? Uh, ditch the leftovers, and is calling them to bring their best to God. The people are bringing God their sloppy seconds, right? And if we go back in the law, we find that in the law, the people were called to actually bring the best with their animals or to bring the firstborn, the best, the unblemished, to worship God in his temple together as his people. This, these sacrifices were part of temple worship with the festivals and the gatherings and the sacred rhythms of the life of God's gathered people. Only here, we have folks, instead of bringing their best, we have them kind of taking the last leftovers, just kind of, ah, this will do, I guess, right? And bringing these to God. Uh, we're told here that the animals they're bringing are lame, are sick, are taken by violence, are blemished. They're bringing God the junk they don't want, and acting like God should be grateful. Have you ever had someone bring you your junk, <laughs> bring you their junk, and act like you should be grateful? I remember when we first started having, uh, we had our first kid, our daughter, and uh, people were suddenly very generous. <laughs> They're like, hey, man, we want to give you these baby gates that, that we had, you know, um, for our children. We don't need them anymore because they're older, and can we bring them over? Oh, that'd be great. So they brought them over and dropped them off on the front doorstep. We pull them, dude, just like, all green with mold and everything, like just all across the whole thing. We're like, this is going to give her an infection, you know? <laughs> Someone else blessed us with a toy castle for our backyard, and there were like six broken parts like sticking out, like my kid's going to get impaled on Magic Mountain here, you know? <laughs> I was talking with a buddy uh, this month who was a PK, like a pastor's kid, grew up pastor's kid, and he was saying how, man, growing up, people used to bring us stuff all the time, but you could tell it was just the stuff they didn't want. Uh, we had uh, one family, say, brought, you know, gave us this TV. They thought, we're bringing a widescreen TV over, and they're like, oh my gosh, that sounds great. And they got it, it was just like shattered and like, the whole thing. And other times, it's like, we'd get clothes all the time, but they were like torn and dirty and ratty. And, and <clears throat> the reality is, uh, these are like the leftovers that they didn't want. And similarly here for Israel, they're bringing God the leftovers they didn't want. And God's like, is that what you really think of me? Right? Is that what you really think of me? A son honors his father, a servant his master. And God's going, here I am, like the ultimate father, the one who has given all of you life, the ultimate master, the one who reigns over all of heaven and earth, who's ultimately in charge. And yet you're bringing me just the leftovers, the sloppy seconds. For Holly and I, on our anniversary, there's a difference. If she comes home and she enters and uh, there's candlelight, right? And the kids are out with grandma and the house has been cleaned up and it's spotless. And there's a personal masseuse waiting to take her into the back room while I kind of finish this dinner that I've been slaving away on and preparing, you know? And there's this, oh man, that's, that's a special moment. There's a contrast or a difference if she comes home and it's like, Dude, the house is a disaster. The kids are screaming. Um, man, there's a card that I, she can tell from the scribbling, like I wrote it on the driver's wheel driving home really fast because I forgot on the way home. And, you know, I, there's, I, I, I swing in with some Mickey D's, you know, some cheeseburgers. I, I grab it on the way, the way in, and she'd be like, hey, is this what you really think of me, Josh, right? Like Jack in the Box equals Josh on the couch, right? <laughs> Because it's, you know, it, yeah, we're still in covenant together. It's just it's like I'm not honoring her, treating her with the respect and the devotion that our relationship deserves. Well, Israel finds themselves in a similar position in this passage. And every week, we gather 
as God's people with Christ, as his bride, with our heavenly father as his children, with our king as citizens of his kingdom. I think the invitation that God gives us to bring the best we have to give to God. I want to talk about that this morning in the context of worship. Uh, it's particularly kind of expressiveness in worship or postures of worship, things of that nature, uh, because we don't bring sacrificial animals anymore to God, and yet we do bring a sacrifice of praise. Uh, in Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. So Paul talks here about our bodies as a sacrifice. He talks about presenting ourselves, that now in Christ, we don't, we don't bring an animal anymore as a substitute for ourselves. Like in Christ, we bring him our very self. We present ourselves to him. So I want to talk about uh, worship like on a Sunday in this regard. And, well, Pastor Josh, right, I don't necessarily want you to talk about worship music that we sing as worship because all of life is all for Jesus, right? And so it's not just the worship songs we sing, it's all of life. And so we don't want to call the music that we sing worship because that might distract people from understanding all life. Yes, all of life is worship, right? And yet, I would say to you, it's a both end, not an either or. What is worship? Worship is worthship. It is declaring the worth of God, the dignity of God. We do that with our songs, and we do that with our lives. We do that Sunday morning, and we do that all week long. In fact, I would suggest to you the songs that we sing on Sunday are designed to train and orient our hearts and our lives to the lives that we live all week long. That the liturgy of worship is designed to lead to lives of worship. That postures regularly in our rhythms as God's people are life towards God as his people. Now, when we talk about uh, expressions, uh, expressiveness in worship and, and things like this, postures of worship, um, I think, you know, the goal here is not to like force or coerce anyone to do something that feels awkward or anything like that, but I think for many of us, it's like, man, we just maybe have never heard a compelling case or reason for why that might be significant or even how to go about it. And at first glance, if you first walk into a church, uh, it can look kind of crazy or weird, like some of the stuff people are doing. Uh, there's a comedian, Tim Hawkins, and he describes some of the different worship postures, right? So there's like the carry my TV. And then there's the widescreen version. <laughs> or there's the hold my baby. <laughs> or even the Mufasa. <laughs> or ultimately, if you're really into it, it's the touchdown, right? Touchdown. Uh, I remember one friend saying, like, when he first walked into a church, he's like, man, it feels like people are doing, like, the Heil salute or something, and that feels really uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. What is going, where am I? What is going on here, right? And so at first glance, some of these things can seem awkward. But I think a good place to start for us is first to just ask, is it biblical? It's kind of things like whether they're talking about kneeling or raising our hands or any of those things. Is it something that is biblically okay to do or that, that we might see any suggestion of in Scripture? And yes, the Psalms are like the worship book of God's people. I want to read just a few examples from the Psalms um, of this. So Psalm 63, 4, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hand. So here, lifted hands is a sign of blessing God in his name. Psalm 88, 9. Says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Here, it's an expression of supplication, of seeking God. Psalm 119, 48 says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Here, it's an expression of devotion to God's commandments. 
Psalm 134.2 says, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Here it's a posture towards God's temple, the, the location of his presence with his people. Psalm 141, verse 2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. Here it's uh, identifying this like the prayers arising to God's people like incense and like the sacrifices and the aroma that's coming before the Lord. Psalm 143, 6 says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Here there's a, a sense of our dependence on, our desperation for God, our need for him. So the postures can be a sign of uh, outstretched arms, can be a sign of surrender or dependence. Uh, kneeling can be a sign of penitence or confession. Raised hands can be a sign of lifting up, of glorifying. And it's not just that. It's not to go, hey, everyone's got to do whatever kind of thing. Uh, but also silence and reverence can be a posture, right? Silence before God. Sometimes you're just overwhelmed by the majesty of who God is. But the invitation, I think, that we see here in Scripture is that we are invited to worship God, not just with our minds, but also with our hearts and with our bodies, to actually express adoration and dependence on God. Okay, well, what is the motivation if we do that, right? Kind of bringing God our best in worship. Uh, the motivation is not to prove how spiritual you are, right? Like, man, if I do whatever, then people are going to think, man, he really loves Jesus. Like, you might not. You could have a wicked heart and do all this stuff on, on a Sunday morning, right? So the motivation is not to prove how spiritual you are. It's not to impress God. It's not to perform for others. Um, but we can also ask, like, well, should I do it if I don't feel like it? Is it, uh, is it just like, man, if it's an overflow or the music hits the right tempo and uh, the fog machine blows up and the lights hit that spot and, oh, man, I'm feeling, you know, is it... <laughs> Is it just a response to kind of the emotional thing of it? It's just no. Malachi actually points us to a different motivation. And so let's continue in this passage. We're uh, going to start, pick up here in 8, verse 8b. God is talking about uh, these kind of secondhand sacrifices. And he says in 8b, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So here, Malachi points to the A game, to the, the motivation here. He says, bring your A game, not necessarily because you always feel it, but because God's worth it, because God's worth it. God points here to his worth. Uh, God's saying, man, I'm, I'm worth it. He says, would you bring that to your governor? So he kind of compares himself to a governor. Like, would you bring that to gov your governor? And yet I'm actually the king, the ruler of all the earth, and you bring it to me? Because you know if you brought that to your governor, he wouldn't accept it. Uh, the point here with like the governor and king imagery, it's not so much uh, authority here in this spot as it is honor. It's pointing to the honor and reverence that's due to God. You can think if like the mayor invited you to uh, a dinner at his house and it was potluck, let's say, and you had to bring something and you kind of grabbed some, you know, moldy bread out of the back of the cupboard or something, just kind of brought that over. And I think when you showed up, the mayor would be like, really? Like this, you know? 
or the, let's say, like the president or some dignitary invited you to uh, their daughter's wedding and you showed up dressed in your, you know, boxers and ratty t-shirt, it would be an affront, you know? And you were like, wow, I just, I, I didn't really, what a weariness this is. I just didn't really feel like, you know, and it's like, well, it's not so much about the feelings, it's just the honor and respect due to the person in question. It could be a sign of disrespect to just kind of bring the leftovers. And the people here in this passage, they aren't feeling it. They're going, man, what a weariness this is. Uh, but it's not really the point. It's about what's appropriate to the occasion and the person. God says, I am a great king. Uh, three times he repeats, my name will be feared among all the nations. Three times he repeats that in this passage. It's pointing to this reality that God's people in worship would declare his worth and would point the nations. There's a missional aspect here that the worth and worthiness of God would be lifted up and displayed amongst his people for all to see. And it's not that we make God worthy, it's that we recognize the worth he has. We don't, we also don't necessarily worship because we, we don't worship because we don't necessarily need to feel it, but we also don't worship because God needs it, right? Like God is not insecure. He's not going, man, I hope they stroke my ego and tell me I'm okay because I'm kind of having a hard day. And if they would just, you know, say some nice things about me, it might make me feel better, you know? That's not God. He's not insecure. He doesn't need our worship to feel better about himself. <clears throat> and yet, we get it backwards in a great way because we need worship. We need to lift high and adore and find ourselves in, in the presence of the one who our hearts were made for. We need worship. And from God's end, I love how he's just like, man, I wish they just shut the doors, like stop lighting useless fires on my altar in vain. Uh, God's, God's willing to shut down church. If He's like, dude, if you'd rather, if this is what you think of me, if you see this as an oppressive obligation to come and bring me your best, then just stay home. Like, I'd rather just shut the doors and not have it happen. I think God's in essence going, man, I, it's not an ego thing. It's just a reality thing of God going, I know I'm worth it. Maybe I'm worth it. Right, right. Hashtag worth it. God knows that he's, <laughs> he's worth it. More than anything else in existence, God is worth it. Well, <clears throat> I want to address uh, three reasons why we might have some concerns. Because you could say kind of like, well, is this just cultural? Like different cultures have different expressions of, of praise or of worship or music. And that's true. And so there's a lot of diversity and all in how we might worship. Um, and yet, I would suggest that in our culture, in the Western culture in, in particular, uh, there can be three uh, dangers sometimes, three tendencies, three assumptions that we can have that can maybe hinder us from maybe experiencing um, more of what God might have for us here. So three reasons why we might feel uncomfortable with this. Um, the first is that sometimes in our culture, we have a diminished view of the body. Right? We have a diminished view of the body. Uh, one of the earliest heresies that the church had to fight was Gnosticism, which said the mind is really the important thing, but the body is really insignificant, and it's all going away anyways. And the gospel confronted that goes, no, all of life is all for Jesus. That includes our hearts, our minds, and it includes our bodies as well. And it's interesting, we can sometimes think a sign of having a diminished view of the body could be like, well, it's really just my thoughts that matter to God. But I find it interesting, they say that 93% of communication is nonverbal. 
This came from Dr. Moravian, uh, did a famous study back in the day. And the conclusions him and his team came to were that s- about 7% of our communication, uh, of us interpreting and receiving communication, is the words themselves, right? Um, and about, what was the other percentages? <laughs> 38% is vocal, like the tone, right? So I can say, why? Or, oh, why? Why? You know, those communicate three very different messages, even though the same thing. And the third, he said about 55% they found actually was visual, of body posture and gesture and language, things like that. And so you could think of the, the first, like the, the 7% is like a text message, where you're getting the information, like maybe the words themselves. Uh, and then you could think of the other 38%, or whatever, is like a phone call where more than a text message, you're now able to hear some of the voice and the tone and, and that kind of thing. Um, but then you could think of the other 55% as the difference when it's a face-to-face, sit-down conversation, right? when you actually sit down with someone and talk with them. And I think one of the questions that uh, I would have for us is, are we giving God the text message, the phone call, or the face-to-face in the presence of God? Because sometimes I think we can treat God more like an idea to be thought about than a person in the room with us. And the invitation is actually to bring all of ourselves to God. Posture matters in communication. Uh, Stephen Miller, an author, he writes this. He says, posture matters. When a young man meets a young woman that he wants to impress, he stands up straight, shoulders back, gut sucked in. He maintains eye contact and a smile. When he wants to propose, he gets down on one knee. When he's messed up royally and needs to apologize, it's two knees. If someone points a gun at you, your hands rise and surrender. If your children want you to hold them or lavish affection on them, they raise their arms. At sporting events, when your team scores, you jump in the air, pump your fists, and shout as loudly as you can. When the ref makes a bad call, you throw your hands up in frustration and boo vigorously. Your heart is caught up in the experience of the moment, which causes your body to respond outwardly. The reality is, our culture knows how to worship. We all know how to worship, right? Like, I've seen you guys at the ASU game. I've seen you at the Chance the Rapper concert, at the political rally. Like, we see these uh, where we express ourselves, not just our, our thoughts or our words, but we express ourselves wholeheartedly before things that we love. And yet, for some reason, often, when we get to church, we can turn into, like, indies, uh, I'm sorry, hipsters at an indie concert, right? Like, where it's sort of the, I'm going to agree with what's being said, but kind of, you know, and sometimes that can be rooted in a certain cynicism. Right? A cynicism or a fear of vulnerability in, in, in opening up with expressiveness to God. When that happens, we can also start judging others. Like, I can't believe that person would raise their hands. Or, I can't believe they're crying. I can't believe they would get down when they forgot. But the reality is you don't know what that person has been through. Right? Like, you don't know what this week has been like for them. The stuff they're bringing in. The, man, the weight of pain. And, man, the spouse who just left or the children that they're struggling with or the sense of loneliness and heartache they feel. And it may be that Sunday is the one chance where I'm I'm coming together for the presence of God. And, God, I need you. I want to bring all of who I am before you. Or for others, that prayer that finally got answered, that job that that just happened. That I remember someone last week told me we were praying, we are praying, and this week I got that job. And there's a proper rejoicing with all of who we are gathering as God's people, giving him our lament and giving him our praise and giving him our worship. Okay, well, the second, so if the first uh, issue could be that sometimes in our culture we have a diminished view of the body, the second 
be that we can have a suspicion of the affections, right, of our desires, of our passions. Uh, the ancient philosopher Plato, he said uh, that in his ideal city, he would have no artists because the artists had the power to kind of incite the emotions or stir the passions and desire. And yet the gospel confronts this. And in the gospel, we find the problem is not the strength of our affections. It's the object of our affections. And when the object is Jesus, the more the better, right? Like when the object of our affections, of our love, or our desire, of our passion is Christ, you can't go wrong pouring more fuel on that fire. So what the gospel does to us is not ultimately suppress our heart, but renews our heart, that now we love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, that we lavish our affection and the fullness of who we are towards our King. And that includes both our mind and our heart, both our thoughts and our desires and affections. The Puritans uh, back in the day had a phrase that in salvation what happens is we are overcome by the power of a great affection. That our love for lesser things becomes overwhelmed with this greater love for Christ because we see his beauty, his radiance, his glory, his worthiness. and We want to give all of who we are to him. Uh, Tyler Johnson uh, is the uh, lead pastor for redemption as a whole uh, or other, with our other congregations. And I remember him asking me once, he was like, why do you think it is that revival seems to so often be um, associated, tied in with like a renewal and movement of worship? And I said, I think part of it is, is that um, it's creating space for the people of God to express their desire and affection and devotion to him. To sing a new song, to bring all of who we are before our king and express our love for him. All right, the third concern that I think we can have sometimes also is that we can be wary of certain traditions, right? Uh, so there can be a sense of, man, people who maybe are more expressive in worship, that maybe we have associations that that's like prosperity gospel or something like that. And so it's like, man, I don't want to do that. Or I don't think we should do that because we don't want to be associated with being, quote, unquote, that kind of church, right? And I'd suggest there is a danger in uh, letting something ruin a beautiful biblical practice because of fear of association. It's kind of like going, man, U of A fans eat pizza, so I'm not going to eat pizza because I don't want people to actually think I'm a U of A fan. Just be an ASU fan who eats pizza, right? Or, um, oh, it's all the, the hippies drive Subarus, and I want a Subaru, but I'm going to drive one because I don't want people thinking, just put your McGregor sticker on the back. I don't know, right? <laughs> like, your Conor McGregor's. Yes, who happened to win last night. <laughs> um, <laughs> point being, don't miss out on a good thing because you're afraid of other people's perceptions. What God's calling his people to here is to live fully before him and to bring him fully all of ourselves. Uh, sometimes, I think your expectation will shape your experience. So if you are going to a, um, <clears throat> let's say if you're going to a business formal meeting, you're going to dress differently than if you're going to a Halloween costume party, right? Your expectation of the event that you're attending will shape how you kind of posture and position and, and attend. And if you think that on a Sunday, as far as the identity of the church, if you think you're going to a lecture hall, then the expectation will be I'm coming to consume information, to receive information and all, right? And there is a teaching instruction important element to Sunday, but it's also much more than that. If you think that you're coming to a, a symphony sanctuary, 
then you come expecting to sing and to lift our voices together as the people of God, the Christ, our King. And the invitation is going, man, don't just come to get information from me. Like, we come to give praise to God as his people. Another image I think we see in the Bible is the, the family, the household of God. If you come to Sunday as a family meal, you come hungry. Like, we gather as the children of God at our Heavenly Father's table that he's prepared for us to feast together as his people, to gather around our Heavenly Father to seek to listen to his word and to seek to rejoice and celebrate together, uh, to seek to be family with one another. Um, for a family meal, you come hungry, right? Have you ever noticed how a meal tastes different when you're hungry? Like if you've been hiking all day and then you hit that restaurant, it's just like, oh, I'm famished. It tastes the best meal I've ever had. You go to the same restaurant another time after you've been snacking on junk food all day and it's just like, nah, it was okay, right? Like, I think there's an invitation to actually come hungry to expect, like, man, Jesus, there's an expectation that we want to meet with you as your people. We're dependent on hearing from you your word. We want to approach this in a posture of dependence and reliance on you. And when it comes to some of that responsiveness in worship, whether that's through the boldness of our voice or our silence and our reverence or our hands or whatever that looks like for you, uh, that there is this invitation to come hungry and to respond to God. When I uh, invite responsiveness sometimes in the sermon, if I say something like, turn to your neighbor, or hey, someone say, uh, the goal is not just to be cutesy, uh, it's to invite participation. Uh, it's to try and turn this times from a lecture hall into the living room, right? The living room of our Heavenly Father, going, we're children together seeking to be fed by him through his word, through his presence, we gather together as his people. We don't have to wait till the next worship set to respond, right? That we can respond together as children with our God. Whatever your posture, your expression, whatever that thing is, it's going to look different for different people. The goal here is there's no judging, like where was that? Like part of the goal is to let go of judgment and be able to bring ourselves fully before God. But my invitation would be whatever your posture, the what that looks like for you is, let your worship be extravagant because God's worth it, right? Like I love in, uh, in King David, when they're bringing the ark back to the temple, they go 15 miles, and every six steps, they slaughter another bull, like it's sacrifice. Bulls were expensive back that day, right? And 15 miles, that's like going from here, walking from here to downtown Phoenix, and every six steps, another bull, six steps, another bull. Like there was an extravagance to their worship and an expectation of meeting God together as his people, his presence. Uh, similarly, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet, she dumps this bottle of perfume, expensive perfume on his feet. We're told it cost a year's wages. It's like 80 grand. She's dumping 80 grand on Jesus' feet, right? Like, it's crazy. It's extravagant. But the reason that King David, the reason the woman who anoints Jesus for burial, the reason they did it was because they believed he's worth it. I think the invitation is that we can, whatever that looks like for you, that God invites you to bring your best, to bring your A game because he's worth it. Okay, well, finally, um, we also see in this passage that liturgy matters, right? We want to talk about liturgy for a moment. And actually, do we have that passage? Uh, if, it's, if it's possible, disable that and pull that up. If not, or to, to enable that and pull that up. If not, I'm just going to read this here. This is in chapter 2, where... Um, 
chapter 2, verse 3. God says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. That's a crazy image. <laughs> the, uh, the dung of your offerings, and you will be taken away with it. The point there is not just like to be gross or whatever. You know, God's not just trying to be gross. The point is going like you had the animal that was offered up and sacrificed to God, the feast people would take, and then the excrement that went out and was thrown in the sewer, right? I think God's essence saying, like, don't let your songs become sewage, right? Don't let your worship become uh, taken out the wastewater because it's not really sincere. Um, instead, he said, and you should be taken with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him and was one of life of peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. And so God highlights and points this covenant with Levi. And he's talking here primarily to the priests, going the, the priests are accepting the shoddy worship. And so God has a higher bar here on the religious leaders of his people. Sometimes I wonder whether, man, I read passages like this, I wonder whether becoming a pastor was the best career choice I could have made, right? Because Jesus' harshest words at times are for the religious leaders, and it can feel like you've got a target on your back because there's a weight of responsibility there. And being intentional with approaching uh, and leading God's people in the things of God. And I want to let you know that I am here, man, we commit to striving to walk uprightly, as, as God points you here, to striving to commit ourselves. He points here to like instruction in God's word, to faithfulness in that instruction, to uh, faithfulness in guiding and leading God's people. And we take that seriously here. We also see here the significance of liturgy. Liturgy is kind of a weird word for many of us. Like, what does that even mean? It sounds archaic. Uh, but liturgy is, we all, liturgy basically, it just means the work of the people. Literally is what it means. And it means the work that we as the people of God do together as we gather together as his people. And uh, these are the rhythms and routines that we do. And God is very specific in the Old Testament about going, man, here's what this worship is supposed to look like. In the New Testament, there's a lot more flexibility. Uh, yet we still want to be intentional with how we approach things. And I am really grateful for Daniel Ziering is our worship pastor here. And you may not know this, but he takes a lot of uh, time and prayer and intentionality with the things that go on in our weekly rhythms here in our service. And a while back, he brought, uh, he brought a proposal that we as elders unanimously loved and agreed upon. And it involves some uh, changes, a, a few changes to our, how we approach our weekly worship gatherings. It's nothing like probably won't sound like mind-blowing or earth-shattering or whatever, but it is uh, the why, though, for these changes, I think, is significant. And so I want to talk about three changes that um, we're making today and some of the significance and the why behind it. Uh, the first change is um, we are moving uh, more of our worship songs, like, to the back end of the service after the message. So one, you'll notice we did two songs today up front rather than three. Um, we're moving one to the back. And that can sound like a small change, but the reason is uh, ultimately, we believe worship is a response. That worship is, is singing, that kind of, it's not something we do to try and drum up uh, some feelings for God. It's not something we do to try and convince God to come down. We don't try and work ourselves up so that God will come down. Right? No, worship is rather a response. It's a response to God's revelation of himself to us. And we believe that God reveals himself through his word and in his spirit. And so there's something powerful, I think, after 
the message where hopefully we've gathered around God's word and hopefully God has disclosed something about who he is, of who Christ is, the glory and the beauty, that we actually have a bit more space that we create to sing and worship in response. I've also found, even for me personally, often singing can be more powerful uh, after a message, after you've experienced a word of comfort or of conviction or of calling. Man, it's like, dude, there's a, I find this desire. Just, I want to praise you. I want to respond to you. So we could be intentional with that time. Part of this, too, is uh, Daniel would say we have an implicit story that we're rehearsing every week in our liturgy, and he's right. That storyline is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, whether we know it or not, implicitly believe it's taken root in us that every sermon we open kind of with creation in that our first song and our call to worship are looking at the glory and the majesty of who God is. The second song uh, often then moves to the fall, like the second song in confession. Today we lamented uh, in honor of Martin Luther King weekend uh, just some of the uh, tragic realities of our history and in our world. And, and so that confession and that song often is one that recognizes our need and our dependence before God. Third movement, um, redemption, that the sermon, the goal here is often to try and transition from fall into redemption by recognizing our need, and yet through the gospel, through the message of that day, like moving towards the redemption that Christ has brought, right? God's redemptive word spoken to us in Christ. And then finally, the last movement is celebration, that uh, the songs we sing at the end and communion, this isn't an addendum to the service, it's the climax of the service, whereas the people of God, we feast on his presence through the sacrament of communion and through uh, worship as God's people, we feast together on Christ who has given himself to us here in our midst. The second change we're making uh, is we're uh, removing kind of the response instructions, right? Like the, um, uh, what Daniel called the flight attendant moment, right? <laughs> like where, uh, and the concern here, so this is the point, um, usually after the sermon, uh, someone will come up and direct us with some of the ways we respond in worship. And that's, information is, is important, it's good, but one of our concerns was that sometimes the informational can interrupt the doxological, right? In the sense that, like, sometimes, ideally, the end of the sermon and worship is focused on worshiping God. It's a very God-centered moment, focused on who God is and declaring his worth and his praise. And one of the challenges that, that can be interrupted a bit, even just the atmosphere with the logistical, where we can kind of move from the God-centered to the inward-centered with the reflection. Uh, reflection's still really important. We just think maybe we want to do that sometimes on the front end of the service, maybe like in confession and the fall in that arena. Um, and the logistical details can, can kind of interrupt like just that attention that we want to have focused only on God worship. This also means, you know, uh, as far as the things that are communicated, um, uh, one of the things that we respond is by singing, and that's kind of obvious, right? Every Sunday we're going to sing, so when the music starts playing, we're going to do that. Uh, but then prayer, we want to take advantage of the prayer that's at the doors. Uh, giving, uh, we'll mention that, make mention of that other places, but we definitely want to continue to be giving as God's people. But communion, that whoever's preaching, that day will be the one who introduces communion in the table. And that's significant because it ultimately uh, means every sermon has to land on Jesus, on an invitation to Jesus. Uh, that hopefully what we're left with at the end of the day, if, if the preacher can't land their sermon on Jesus, then it's not really a sermon, right? Uh, like the goal, yes, I mean, you can clap for that. That's right. 
the goal is to invite us to the table, to Jesus himself. And this also embodies our theology of communion, what we believe is happening here, uh, what could be called like a Calvin's like real presence versus maybe Zwingli's mere remembrance, right? That uh, the table is not just something we do, it's someone we come to. That this is a means of grace that God has given his church, that as we come and we gather, that Christ himself feeds us as his people in the presence and the power of his spirit. He gathers us and he's given this as a way of not only remembering something long, he's done long ago, it's that, but it's also coming before him and receiving from him as his people. And hopefully this means too that what we're left with at the end of every week is not so much, oh, that was a good message, um, but more of come to Jesus, right? It becomes kind of a functional altar call every week, an invitation to come to Christ, not as some all right, finish the message, now I'm gonna give these points that are entirely disconnected to come to the altar call, whatever, but actually like integrated with whatever we're talking about that morning, we see how Jesus is related to it and we come to him, an invitation to come to Christ every week. And finally, the third and final change here uh, is uh, communion at tables. And uh, part of the reason for this, there's been a really powerful symbolism in the way that we've practiced communion uh, for a while now. Uh, which has been receiving it from people, serving it to us. And there's powerful symbolism and imagery there about receiving uh, the body of Christ from his people, that Jesus feeds us through in and through one another as well. And so um, I just want to say, man, if, for any of you who either have in the past or currently serve communion, thank you for the work that you do. Can we give them a hand? Like, That's not a, just a functional to-do, like that's actually a powerful uh, part of our life together as God's people. Um, so the shift, it's not that we think it was bad that we were doing it before, uh, but sometimes size dynamics can factor into this, that as, uh, with, with the size we are, we wanna create some time and some space where we can personally reflect at the table. That as we come, uh, it, you don't have to feel rushed per se, like I get my bits and go, right? Um, but there can be a space to come before just to maybe pray. Maybe you, you want to kneel. Maybe you want to pray, bring something before God. And also that you could uh, potentially come together, grab a friend, grab a family, come and spend some time around the table uh, in worship of Jesus. And likewise, that we would come in an atmosphere of worship. I think sometimes one of Daniel's right, rightful concerns was that with the informational break in between, uh, it can almost lead to, uh, it could feel like a funeral dirge dynamic sometimes, right? Like where uh, it can feel a bit dark and going, no, the, the Eucharist, the, the communion, it's a celebration. Historically, the word Eucharist just means give thanks. It was a time of God's people giving thanks for what Christ has done for us as his people. And so in an atmosphere of celebration and worship, we want to come and feast on his life at the center of our life as a people. <clears throat> and so a few logistical notes for this morning, like as you come to the table this morning, uh, I wanna invite you uh, to come these, quick side note, we realized this morning that uh, the gluten, if you're, if you're celiac or have issues with gluten, um, the gluten-free ran out, the middle two tables have it, the side ones on the end do not, all gluten-free. Never mind, Jim found gluten-free this morning, so take that back. We're all good. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Awesome. <laughs> okay, well, as we come, uh, part of the invitation, though, is um, come on, take your time. I know often, you know, we line up, and that, that's not bad, um, but the reality is now we have three songs 
during all of the, the time for worship and response to come forward. So don't feel like you need to come right away. You can wait till the lines are shorter if, if they're building up. Uh, and feel free to come to any of these tables at the front uh, to receive. But the invitation this morning is to come to Christ, our worship leader. Christ who extended his arms, who raised his hands, who offered his body as a living sacrifice because he believed his father was worth it. He offered himself in a pure and true act of worship because he believed his father was worth it and because he believed and believes that we are worth it. We're worth it not because of how good we've been or how much we've loved God. We're worth it not because of our great love for God. We're worth it because of his great love for us. The cross is the place where he ultimately declared that worth worthiness of the Father and his declaration because of his love of our worth to him. So as we come this morning, the invitation is to worship with all of who we are, whatever that looks like for you, but that we would worship him not just with our, our minds or our thoughts, but with our hearts, our affections, our desires, with our body, that we would declare the greatness of our king. That, man, God ditched the leftovers right? And he gave us the best he had to give. He gave us his son. And so we can give all we are, all we have to God because he gave it all to us. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you that you have given it all for us. Father, we thank you that you ditched the leftovers. You didn't give us second best, second rate, any of that. God, you gave us the best you had to offer your very son. And so, God, we want to be a people who worships you with both the songs we sing and the lives we live. And we want to be intentional with our time gathering together as your people. That even here, God, that we would not see it as a weariness, Lord, but we would see it as an opportunity, God, as an invitation to bring you the best we have to give because ultimately it's in you that fullness of life is truly found. God, we declare this morning, God, that we need worship because we need to feast on your goodness. We need to taste and see that you are good to delight in you, our Lord. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that um, man, minister to each of us in whatever spot we're at this morning, wherever we're coming in. Uh, but God, I pray that we would, not only with our heads, but with our hearts, God, with our lives, we would see that you're worth it. God. That we would taste that you're worth it. Or that we would express that you're worth it with all that we have to give. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray, Jesus.